You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, I want to ask you about something that I think is like a little bit cryptic, but I'm sure there has to be a good story behind it. You have a Bezos paradox. Tell me about the Bezos paradox. Well, I wanted to tell this story because I just wanted to do a load of name dropping and get to say that I once talked to Jeff. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way. So once I talked to Jeff. But actually, no, there's a serious thing that comes in. And, and, and so let me give you the background. So this before um, I was in my current job, I was invited to, um, when I was at University of Sheffield, so before I worked for Amazon, I was invited to um, speak at the Amazon Machine Learning Conference, which at that time was like 2,000 people. It's now like even bigger. I was giving a talk, this is like 2016, I think, on data-efficient learning. I was sort of saying, well... Uh, deep neural network's great, but, you know, Gaussian processes are data efficient. That's kind of what I was saying. And Jeff was in the audience, Jeff Bezos. Actually, my favorite bit about that is the kind of no one knew he was there. He was hidden away. And there was a guy asking a question. They were like queuing for the microphones and he's like queuing for the microphone behind this guy that's doing that thing. Yeah, like a real person. You know, he's generally, he's, he's generally, well, whenever I've seen him, he's kind of seems, uh, he, he tries to be a real person. If you've ever been at Neurips and someone's like queuing for a question and like they're going on for their question for quite a long time, sort of like you're sort of giving the answer and then they keep doing follow-ups and thinking, this guy's taking a while at the mic. I don't know, it felt to me, now I can't, because of course it's a sort of thing, because I'm standing there thinking, oh, there's Jeff Bezos about to ask a question behind this guy. And this guy's like oblivious. And he's sort of talking on some detailed thing. On slide three, you had a factor of half. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, slide three. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the guy finishes and Jeff uh, Jeff asks his question. And Jeff's question was uh, something like, it was about power efficiency. He said, well, the human brain operates off the power roughly of a light bulb or something like that, which I think is true. So, of course, he says, that's a very good question. That's an excellent question. <laughs> I can't remember what I I sort of said, oh, yeah, no, that's interesting too. And power efficiency. I, I did some fumbling answers because I didn't have any. Anyway, afterwards, in the break, we had a, a chance to have a quick chat. The funny thing, at this point, everyone knew Jeff was there. So everyone was taking selfies with him, like from the entire company. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, I get sort of swung up to him and um, he says, oh, thanks. That was a really nice talk. And he said something about, he said, so can you get power efficiency for these models by like using low precision? And I said, no, actually with Gaussian processes, we typically, we even need double precision quite often. I mean, we can sometimes get away with single, but typically we need uh, double precision to deal with the algorithms. And I'd been pushing a lot the ability of the Gaussian process to deal with uncertainty. And I'd been pushing the idea, which I kind of believe in. So it's good that I believe in something I've been pushing. But the the, the uncertainty was very important for data efficiency. I, I believe in that. So Jeff says, he goes, well, that's funny, because you said that Gaussian processes handle uncertainty and neural networks don't. But now the parameters of neural networks, you can get away with lower precision. And you're saying that with Gaussian processes, you can't. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I I thought about that a lot because I think of it now as the Bezos paradox because he pointed out to me. Maybe other people have maybe other people have pointed out before, but good luck in uh, calling it the Smith paradox or something else. And I think it's a very interesting aspect. It, it, it's something that's very challenging for Gaussian process models. I think there are some interesting solutions. 
but and, and perhaps other models where when you're in doing variational methods, you're actually, so what I think is going on here is the, the approximations I was talking about are either not approximations, you know, you're either trying to do the exact inverse and, or when you're doing certain variational approximations, it turns out that to fit the distribution, what you're doing is you're moving a distribution around latent space. And I'm, I'm sure there's no sort of rule associated with this, but if you're actually trying to fit the distribution, it seems that when you're doing your optimization, you need to resolve it with very high precision. Because if you don't resolve it with very high precision, you're trying to jointly fit this mean and covariance, you can often get, get stuck in like these plateau areas that somehow you may have made your optimization harder by moving this whole distribution around and trying to fit it with high precision. And it always, because it interests me a lot. And this came up in the MLSS a lot. Um, people were like David Bly and Shakir Mohammed were both banging a drum that I used to bang a lot. And I still believe in, but I don't need to bang it when everyone else is banging it about separation of model and algorithm. Like you think about your model, you think about your algorithm together. But this is a, a counter example of where that becomes quite dangerous. I think that so neural networks sort of conflate model and algorithm. And I think you get away with the lack of precision because um, because you're not trying to fit a distribution because the sort of surfaces, they're so badly determined, but you can kind of, it sort of doesn't matter where you end up to a fine level of precision. I, I don't think I'm explaining that too well. It's sort of like, if you think about the surface, okay, so sure, there's uncertainty in the Gaussian process and you're, you're trying to cater for that uncertainty. But in terms of your optimization, because you're moving a distribution around in that certain space, and you think about your variational methods, I think you're converting, um, if your optimization function, if your optimization problem has a very large basin of attraction to start with, if you were doing the non-Bayesian thing, once you do the Bayesian thing, so large basin of attraction, I mean that like it's kind of, you, you easily get somewhere near the minima by dropping yourself in anywhere. But once you start moving a large distribution around this space, you are now optimizing the parameters of that distribution. So your, your new optimization function potentially has a very sort of narrow basin of attraction it's quite hard to find the optimum and that's why you need to go for very high precision whereas if you don't do the bayesian thing and you just drop yourself in there then you sort of get somewhere roughly near them so like you don't get like you maybe you get the location of the optima right within half a standard deviation of where you should be if you were doing the full bayesian thing but that's still good enough but if you're doing the full bayesian thing if you get your uh, maxima within half a Optima right. I mean, you, you've got your variances all over the place. You're trying to jointly maximize these things or minimize these things. It's a bit of a mess. I think that the answers come, I think things like stochastical, stochastic variational inference that may help a lot, but it's, it's something that I've, so stochastic variational inferences, well, I'm not sure if it helps. I mean, that's something I'm, I'm even confused about whether that actually helps. Maybe it's just the large amount of data that helps, but I'm not sure if it's, there's anything hard and fast about this, but it, it struck me as very, very interesting. And maybe everyone now has amazing papers where they can get rid of with a, get away with eight bits and thirty-two bits on Gaussian process modeling. But I just don't think they do. And until they do, it, these methods are going to struggle because what you're going to see happening now is there are hardware companies specifically designing hardware to deal with the sort of operations you need for neural networks. So whether or not that's the, the ultimate right thing, that's what's going to be produced. So you're going to have mobile phones with like specialized perhaps 16-bit hardware for fitting neural networks or predicting from neural networks. And if you can't work out a way of turning your algorithm 
into something that sits on that architecture, you're going to be in trouble. So unless we can resolve the Bezos paradox, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be hard for people that are, have algorithms that require these sort of high precision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we will find more people thinking about this Bezos paradox, and we will have links to their research or thinking. Maybe it's someone else who resolved. People who are like, we get thousands of mails Solved. saying, Solved. I talked about that in 1946. <laughs> you know, I already fixed this. You know, so don't even worry about it. If you fix the Bezos paradox, you can get us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. And we would love to put whatever you fixed up on our website, which is thetalkingmachines.com. Yeah. Solve the Bezos paradox. So this week's listener question on Talking Machines is about NeurIPS. Neil, what was your best paper for NeurIPS 2018? Did you have a favorite? Was there something that really stood out to you, a poster or something you saw in a workshop that you thought was, like, amazing? It was so – I was kind of blown away by, again, every year I am. I find it hard to take it all in. I, I'm just – I'm very impressed by, like, the diversity of things that are going on. I actually – find it harder and harder to um, get to grips with a paper when like there's a lot of people around the poster. So I know like the, a lot of the papers that you know about, like the neural ODE machines and stuff like that, I think are very cool and sort of people have been known about them uh, before the conference. And, and that's funny because a lot of stuff's on archive now, I guess over this recent period, the paper that I get a lot out of small workshops where I get to hear the, authors present and um at the dali meeting i was very struck by um uh, work that suchisario was talking about she wasn't actually at um neurips but i think it's i think maybe an earlier version was there or maybe at one of the workshops but anyway it is accepted for ai stats which is in japan speaking of we've been talking about conferences going places it's in japan which is great okay so i i saw the presentation and there's some in, there's what what she's looking at is sort of important for data set shift and fairness and other things. But I don't think that they're making as broader claims for their work as I'm going to make for this general direction in the paper. But I just thought it was a really useful start in that direction. Suchi was sort of pushing the generative model behind um, a, a disease. She's trying to look at the sort of situation where I think it was the example she used was asthma attacks. And you've got certain things. If we think of like Pearl, classical Pearl, sort of probabilistic graphs, sort of they can be caused by not taking your inhaler or they can be caused by smoking or something like that. Um, what I thought was interesting about her work, which is with her student whose name escapes from, we'll put that, make sure that's on the website, was that she brought in this notion, and, and maybe people have similar notions, but of stable and unstable links in the graph. Now, let me try and explain why I think this is important. The stable and unstable, the stable links were sort of links that Suchi believed would always apply regardless of conditions. So something like smoking affects asthma. And then unstable links were things like outside influences that might vary in different places like whether or not people are taking their inhaler that might vary in one place or another according to policy or maybe distribution of inhalers i'm sure it's much better explained in the details of the paper but just giving you the summary of that now what was interesting and what they try and do in the paper is augment the graphical models or succeed in doing with additional variables 
additional variables that allow you to ask counterfactuals regardless of the unstable links. So meaning that you've augmented the graph in such a way that you can ask a counterfactual question and deal with the confounding variables. So these unstable links are now sort of considered confounding variables and have an algorithm that is robust to deployment in cases where um, the unstable link is not operating as it did in your original training data. So that gives you as that's that's related very closely to data set shift. Importantly, okay, and I think that this is a really interesting trend we're seeing. Often when people are now talking about causal inference, I think in the old days it was very much I'm going to fit my directed graphical model. But in this paper and a lot of others you're seeing, the graph is sort of the inspiration for what the algorithm should be. So I think once you've introduced these augmented variables, you actually fit the you fit various conditional distributions directly with your deep neural network, your Gaussian process, whatever you want to do. Now I, I think that that's super interesting, and it may be it may be just the sort of um just the one paper I've seen that's part of a broad number of works. So apologies if I'm missing other work in this space, but we'd, we'd love to hear about it. Why do I find this very very interesting and important? I think that we really struggle with our modeling because we have to specify everything. What do I mean by that? I mean, the, if we're trying to look into the future, one of the things, a, a technique that I think is very effective is not to say what's going to happen, but, gonna, but to say what's not going to happen. Like again, actually, Bezos does this. His quotes are famous. I don't know what the future is going to look like, but I don't think people want to pay more for stuff. I don't know what the future is looking like, but I don't think that they'll want to wait longer. It seems sensible. You're saying, oh, it's not going to be a world where people want to pay more. And I think that that's a very useful technique, you know, to, to sort of almost specify constraints on the future rather than specify everything. Now, probabilistic models and a lot of models we create just try and specify everything. You don't get to sort of say there's going to be it's going to be like this and everything else is going to be left to its own devices. You kind of have to specify every variable in the graph. Now, Suchi's work it excited me a great deal, not just because it's interesting work in the application, but it's pointing a way forward at that. Because in effect, when you look at what she's saying about stable links in the graph versus unstable links, she's saying, oh, this part can vary, that I can model this other thing here, and I can, you know, and, and that other confounder, that can do any stuff. I've got a way of dealing with that. Now, whether the approach she's taking is going to be the right way of dealing with this in general, but the point is you're sort of hinting towards a sort of domain where instead of specifying your entire graphical model to specify your system, you're expressing part of your graph. You're saying oh, there's this conditional independence relationship for only these X number of variables. There's other stuff going on, and I think it's like this. But, you know, there's this part here. And, and, and what can I say about the future with this strong constraint on part of the graph? So it's like, the you know, other stuff may happen, but this part of the graph is constrained to look like this. It feels like, I don't know, just a crack into that. I'm not saying it's giving us the whole direction and I haven't had time to sit down and go through it in detail. And 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 I don't really need to because Suchi's doing it, right? That's the great thing about a community. I don't have to run around chasing everyone. <laughs> yeah. Because Suchi's doing it. It's fantastic. Well, it's like it's one of the things that is tied to that's classically one of my approaches. Like if really bright people are doing something really, really interesting that you think is important, you don't have to compete with them. You could just let them do it. 
It sounds like a very energy efficient way to do exploration of a space. You could just be pleased that other people are doing stuff. <laughs> if it's like you think I need to mow my lawn and someone else is mowing your lawn, you just think, oh, no, you don't have to rush out there and mow the, mow the last part of it before they get there. You could just let them to continue to mow the lawn. Go, go, you can go, like, I don't know, weed the flower beds. <laughs> cooperative, cooperative approach. Yeah, I like it. Oh, it's definitely, I don't know, because I do think sometimes in the community at the moment, it's like, oh, someone's done this, we must all rush and do that. Yeah, 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 no. You don't have to, someone's doing it. Someone's doing it already. You can relax. I know it's not entirely like that and it's frustrating when you're on the cusp of doing something someone else does it for you but but i think a little bit more of the like i mean i do find that interesting if i found a use for it in something specific i'm doing right now i would be all over it but i'm trying to be more problem driven and but it's just great to know that these sort of techniques are being developed yeah absolutely and we will have a link to learning predictive models that transport suchi's paper by sabaswami shulam and saria up on our website thetalkingmachines.com and if you've got a question or if you had a favorite paper at dali or nurips or somewhere you've been lately let us know at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com and you can tweet us at tlkngmchns This week's guest on Talking Machines is Dougal McLaurin of Google Brain. And when we got a chance to sit down with Dougal, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? It's, it's been a little bit roundabout. Uh, so I started out in physics, which is actually a, a surprisingly conventional uh, place to start for a machine learning person. <laughs> I, I did my undergrad in Australia at the University of Melbourne, and I came uh, to the U.S. in 2010 to study physics at Harvard. I started out not in, in machine learning. I actually started out in a biophysics lab, in Adam Cohen's lab, doing sort of experimental photophysics, really. It was actually, it, it was an amazing time. Uh, I spent two years in that lab, and, and even as a machine learning person now, it's, it's a quite a formative experience. So, so I could even describe a little bit about, oh, about what I did, and, and uh, did also, there. How does, a f how does someone doing experimental photophysics end up in a bio lab? Well, it's a, it's, it's a biophysics lab, and, and in a sense, I was, I was focused on instrumentation, so, so sort of building microscopes and spectrometers and, and, and sort of taking careful measurements of these, uh, these fluorescent proteins. Yeah, so, so, uh, so Adam's lab has, uh, has discovered this fluorescent protein, archaeoridopsin, and it sits in the, in the cell membrane of a, of, of, a, of a neuron or any other cell that you can put it into, and it, it, it fluoresces, so you can see it under the microscope, and importantly, its fluorescence is responsive to voltage, so you can, you, you can look at this thing and, and see when the neuron's firing. So it's a way of optically reading out uh, neural activity. Yeah, so it's it's a it's an amazing little piece of, of technology. And I was yeah I, I was I was building instruments to study the the sort of uh, spectral and electrical properties of this this uh, fluorescent protein. I was, was doing that for for two years. Finished the the project I've been working on. So we we characterized the sort of three photon process that was involved in uh, involved sensitivity of this uh, this microbial rhodopsin. And then I was I was looking at sort of what uh, what what was going to be the next sort of natural step. And it was it was, it was clear that uh, that sort of pursuing that line of work was was uh, was going to involve getting deeper and deeper into into biology, which wasn't really my home turf, but but was certainly interesting in its in its its own right. But in the in the meantime, I actually started getting very interested in in machine learning. So so with with several friends, started you know listening to the old Coursera videos. Also had some some uh, some friends in in uh, in Ryan Adams' lab, and, and and they were having a great time. And actually, in my in my sort of experimental photophysics work, the part that I was I was actually enjoying the most was was really analyzing data. So so we we uh, we got these amazing 
amazing data sets coming off our, our rigs, high dimensional data, uh, you know, you, you have time and input spectrum and output spectrum, and uh, these are all, all uh, videos as well, so you have, uh, have two dimensional resolution. There are just so many ways you can slice and dice this data and, and, and look at it in different ways. I decided that, there, that maybe I'd try to actually remodel myself as more of a, of a sort of data science-y, software engineering sort of, sort of person. And machine learning was almost going to be my, my backdoor into that, that somehow it'd be hard to be taken seriously as a physicist doing software engineering, but maybe there's a, there's a path in, in machine learning. And I, I never imagined that actually machine learning would be the thing that, would, uh, that, that I'd, I'd end up really enjoying, but also that would, would be so, so popular and, uh, and sort of sought after today. But yeah, so, so I, I, I made that hard decision to, to change fields in the middle of my PhD there and join Ryan's lab. It, it, was a, it was a fantastic time I had after that. So I uh, so it was a sort of golden period in, in, in Ryan's group. There were just so many great, great researchers doing, doing a real range of, of, of different things. That, that's how I got into, into machine learning. Did you continue to work on the Rhodopsin data sets when you were in Ryan's labs, or did you? I didn't so much. No, we'd, we'd, we'd closed up that, that we'd, we'd finished that particular project, so, so all that data, we'd, we'd analyzed it and sort of put that aside. In, in Ryan's group, I was, I was really doing a sort of raw methods development. So, so I started out doing some uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo. Uh, they work, uh, uh, we, we wrote a little paper called Firefly Monte Carlo, which was about sort of subsampling data sets and, and then still doing sort of like asymptotically exact MCMC inference. I worked on a project sort of maybe more related to physics chemistry stuff, trying to predict the properties of organic molecules from their structure. Uh, that was actually in collaboration with the Harvard Chemistry Department with the Linus Verhuis group. We were looking at organic uh, LEDs and organic photo photovoltaics and trying to, uh, trying to predict their, their properties. But, but somehow the sort of the, the project that actually I think had, had the most impact was a little side project that I started one weekend as a sort of proof of concept. And this was, um, this was an automatic differentiation project. So it was, it was actually, it was in the, in, in the service of this this project to predict the properties of organic molecules. We, we, we wanted to build these elaborate neural networks that, that took different organic molecules, so different you know, graph topologies as, as inputs. And it was quite a hard thing to express with the, the tools at the time. And so we started this, this project called Autograd. Actually, originally it was called Funky Yak, which was a <laughs> terrible name. And, uh, and, and, and luckily that's been sort of banished history, but we eventually uh, named it Autograd. And that became this sort of software package that the people started to use. Yeah, and it's, it's had a huge impact. I think it has had some modest impact. One, one funny sort of uh, impact that it's had is actually it's been successful enough that it's become a generic term. So uh, Autograd is the package that we, uh, that we wrote is all about tracing and tracing meaning tracking the, the sort of transformations that are applied to input values of a function as they get transformed into the output values of a function and, and by doing that, differentiating the, the function. But the name Autograd has somehow been a sort of meta tracer where, uh, where various different projects have started using it as a generic uh, term, including PyTorch and MXNet and, and so on. So we can recognize that maybe there was some influence of, of the various system on those just by the, the, uh, the name becoming generic. One of our collaborators on Autograd, Matt Johnson, sort of says that the biggest mistake of his life was having Autograd be uh, named with a, with a lowercase a instead of an uppercase. Say. <laughs> so, but now, so you basically become Kleenex. I mean, I mean, it was a pretty canonical name to to begin with. So maybe we were, it was presumptuous of us to sort of stake a claim for that real estate. Excellent. So, tell me about tell me more about the questions that you were were really excited about in Adams's lab. In Ryan Adams' lab, I really worked on many different projects. So I was I was originally originally interested in this sort of methods development, and and, and so that's what led to this uh, this work in, in uh, MCMC. But increasingly, and I think that that's sort of where I am. And now I started getting interested in this, this, this problem of, of sort of how to express machine learning models and, and generally how to sort of express data analyses. 
sort of more more easily and in, in a way that lets you iterate more more quickly on ideas. And so so that was the, the motivation behind Autograd, and and it's the motivation of my work uh, today at, at at Google as well. It's 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 how can you make it as, as simple as possible to express what's in your head and uh, in, in in code. We'll talk more about the other stuff that you've been doing in a minute, but let's talk about the work that you've been doing at Google Brain. You you recently came over to Google Brain and you're working on this project. I believe it's called Jax. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jax, which uh, which stands for it originally stood for just after execution, so that there's the idea of a, of a just-in-time a JIT compiler, and just after execution was a was a sort of joke that you could compile after executing the function. So Jax uh, sort of stemmed from Autograd. It was an observation of Matt Johnson very early in the development of Autograd, which was that we're we're building this rep- representation of a computation for the purposes of differentiating it, but you could just as easily use that same representation to compile the function and, and then have it run fast on accelerators. So one of the big things holding Autograd back. Um, it, it, I think it was it had some successful ideas, but as a as a software artifact, it was never it was never able to do anything other than run on a CPU. And, and of course, deep learning is 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 all about exploiting modern highly parallel accelerators. And 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 so not being able to run on GPU or or even Google's TPUs was was always a big limitation. So Jax addresses that limitation by compiling Python programs, Python functions, by specializing them to to particular shapes. Then yeah, just in time compiling them via XLA so they can run on on these different accelerators. That's the first pass at at at, at Jax's Autograd plus GPUs and TPUs. What we've we've discovered more generally is that there's there's all sorts of program transformations you want to be able to make on your on your uh, program. In traditional computer science, programmers write programs and then compilers get to transform them into other programs. Usually, usually an equivalent program, but but at a at a lower level. But actually, when when you're doing numerical computing, there are all sorts of transformations that you as the user want to control. So automatic differentiation is a is a great example of that. But even things like Bayesian inference is another example, or even optimization, which is the sort of core thing that we that we do in in machine learning. All these things are much easier if you have access to the program. Like as a as a piece of of data that you can manipulate, and so so Jax at a more philosophical level is a system for transforming Python programs in a way that's sort of composable and, and very flexible. That's amazing. I mean, that sounds that sounds huge. I think it I think it could be be very powerful. It 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 is it is just the the very very beginning. There are certainly lots of limitations uh, as it as it currently stands. Just as as certainly some you know some of the ideas in in Autograd have made their way into into more. Sort of mainstream systems like like PyTorch and, and TensorFlow, Eager, uh, both have their auditive sort of loosely based around around Autograd. We hope that this research project, Jax, can yeah can uh, can also lead to a, to a world where we we can readily do program transformations composably and and in user space. Nice. And it, the release was a couple of months ago, right? That's right. So actually, at at Neurops, we we were hacking in, in in a cafe for for most of the conference. We eventually uh, uh, yeah we, we eventually put it up on GitHub, and it it, it seems to be uh, of, of interest to, to some people at least up there. That's fantastic. So, do you have any hopes or plans for it in for the next evolution, or are you just trying to like find and squash all the bugs right now? Uh, to be honest, we're actually not really in in bug squashing mode. Partly because it is deliberately a, a research project, and and we, there will be bugs, and and sort of the the people who are willing to use it, I think, uh, are tolerant of them, and often actually squash them themselves. I, I think we're we're always interested in pushing it forward and and, and trying out uh, the next thing. So one of the big things at the moment is just distribution that that we can take advantage of one GPU, but take advantage of, of many GPUs or TPUs or, or sort of large larger systems. Program transformation is a is a great way to think about that problem as well. And so so uh, getting a nice distributed story is is one of the near goals. Fantastic. So what other questions are you really excited about here at Google Brain? So I'd definitely say that that having moved from physics into machine learning and, and now working on, on Jackson and Autograd, my, my current interests really are 
more about sort of programming languages and, and, and how to express numerical programs than they are in, in traditional machine learning. So I'd keep on working on JAX and sort of related projects for a time. There's a, there's a much sort of bigger picture than machine learning, which is maybe loosely described as data science or, or even you know, numerical data analysis, high dimensional data analysis. And I think there's actually a lot of scope for programming languages ideas to just make it much easier to ask the questions that you need to, to ask in order to make, make discoveries. I think back to my time at Adam Cohen's lab doing, doing microscopy experiments, and also my, my time at Azero Diagnostics uh, analyzing genomic data. And so often you're, you're bound by the amount of time it takes to take a, a question you have in your head about your data and, and the time it takes to, to implement that as a, as a software artifact that you can execute. And if you can make that time as short as, as possible, then it makes the, the whole process of science much, much uh, faster. And, and I think it, it genuinely enables you to make discoveries at a rate that you, that you actually couldn't otherwise. Absolutely. And, and having the idea of a language that's truly fungible would, would, I think, make a lot of progress in terms of replicability and just like information sharing. It seems like a really big roadblock that if cleared might change the way that the uh, field absolutely, works. Absolutely, yeah. I, 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 I think there's a, there's a huge range of questions around so like that reproducibility and, and sort of clarity of, of what, you're, what you're doing. If, you're, if your program is very obfuscated because of all the sort of you know, technical uh, limitations of the programming language, then it becomes hard to even know if it's correct, right? Okay. And, and as, as so much of science is, is, is based on, on fairly sophisticated analyses of, of large data sets, it becomes yeah, even more, more important to, to have this sort of analytical question be as clear as it can be in code, not just for writing it, but also, as you say, for, for reading it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned Day Zero Diagnostics, which is uh, a startup you had. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so actually, after after grad school, I started this company, Day Zero Diagnostics, with uh, my wife, another close friend from grad school, and my wife's PhD advisor, and, and an old college friend of, of, of his called Day Zero Diagnostics. So my wife, Melissa Anatar, she's an MD-PhD, and, and, and during her, her PhD, she studied uh, the vaginal microbiome. So she, she studied the, the role of, of vaginal bacteria in HIV acquisition. And, and other things like that. And she, she did a lot of sequencing of bacteria. So a lot of her work was, was taking samples and doing shotgun sequencing to, to discover what's in there and, and sort of uh, looking at that, that data. And there was this sort of, there was this paradox where it was very easy and, and fast to, to sequence bacteria and, and see what's in it. And yet in the clinic, in order to discover what bacteria somebody's infected with, you actually have to culture the bacteria for you know, days in order to, to see what a person has. And, and so drug treatment decisions are made really in the dark you know, with, 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 uh, without any of this information at all. And so the, the sort of premise of day zero diagnostics was, was let's, let's uh, get you the, the diagnostic information at day zero just by, by sequencing what's in, your, what's in your blood or sputum. And so that was the, the idea. Her PhD advisor, Doug Kwan, uh, is a clinician, and, and so he was sort of painfully aware of the, the clinical problem. And so the two of them brought on board me and, and Miriam to, to handle the data analysis side of things. So, so even, even if you can sequence the bacteria quickly, actually understanding what those genomes mean is, is not totally trivial because you have to, um, it's, it's, it's reasonably easy to understand what uh, species of bacteria a person's infected with. But to uh, understand the antibiotic resistance is a, is a much harder problem. And so this mapping, even though there, there exists such a mapping from you know, genotype to, to phenotype, it's a, it's a classic hard problem. And, and we, we understand it in only such limited cases. So the approach there was, was going to be a machine learning one, which is just that if we could collect enough samples where we, we know the genome and, we, and we've done the, the phenotypic antibiotic susceptibility tests, then we can, we can build a, a model that, that predicts one from the other. The five of us started, started out working on that. And that company's still still uh, growing very strong. So we actually uh, recently closed uh, a Series A round led by Tri Ventures, 
which was nice. There's uh, 8.6 million, and that should should fund us for for some time. And it's it's really going from strength to strength. So uh, Miriam's the CTO now, and and she just does a superb job of, of sort of technically of technical leadership running the the, the company's so research and, and development. And Zhang Li is our CEO, and 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 he does a superb job of of uh, managing the business side of the company. So I I left day zero a year ago to start at Google Brain. It was a it was again a, a very hard decision. This opportunity to as I mentioned before take auto Grad, which had been this this sort of you know modestly successful project, but always held back by by its, its sort of lack of acceleration and, and you know GPU capabilities, and sort of take that uh, for the next generation into into Jax. I left to join Brain in, in January of last year. On a sort of practical level, uh, my wife and I also had a baby, and so that I think factored into the, uh, the decision a, uh, a little bit. But uh, yeah, she's she's uh, she's great. That's great, excellent. And so I think a lot of people in the field right now are really excited about the idea of direct collaboration with people who are not experts in their field but have access to data, right, right in right. huge piles. Yeah. And starting a startup with one's wife and her and her advisor and your other friends from grad school. Seems like a super intense collaborative experience. It was super intense. It was it was it was super fun, and and it it still is. So I'm I'm still involved at least as a as a consultant, and it's it's just amazing the the pace of things in a in a startup. Certainly, it it, it was very intense in the early days. We were even. I think we there were, there were times we were even doing experiments out of our kitchen and our apartment with supplies that we had ordered from Amazon. When, when you when you when you have a close relationship with your wife and then you're also you know working together, it's it's very intense but also extremely rewarding. We were we were just uh, nonstop thinking and, and living and breathing this this uh, this company and this idea, and it was it was it was very fun. That's awesome. Did you learn anything about? Speaking clinician in working on this project. Yeah, you 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 definitely pick up a bit of the the lingo and and jargon. It, it's a it's a funny thing where where it's actually a problem that didn't take any selling at all to physicians. It, it's 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 so recognized as a as a as a, as a problem. The slowness of of uh, diagnosing bacteremias that actually on the clinic on the clinical side, there's very little convincing. It's 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 more a question of can we get the science and technology to the point where it's it's you know uh, reliable and uh, and and fast enough and. And uh, we think we can, but it'll it'll take some time. Nice, fantastic, excellent. So so let's return to to your work at Google Brain. You're excited about working on these questions around language. Where else do you feel like we're going to see sort of big leaps and bounds, or are there other big roadblocks that you feel like need to be jumped before we can sort of make movement on this larger fungible language question? Yeah, that's a really good question. Languages there there are many many ways to answer it. Languages are are I think surprisingly easy to create and implement always the challenge is, is getting adoption so so uh, so it's it's certainly a big ask to imagine that the people will switch from their python and r and uh, or even julia in the near term but i think it's still important to try to imagine what a what an ideal language might might look like and then then maybe th- those ideas can be can be sort of backported to existing languages or maybe not there's also a, a uh, sort of related programming languages for machine learning there's also um Maybe sort of machine learning for programming languages, or maybe programming languages as as machine learning, which, which is another topic that that is it's always of interest, but again, a, quite a hard one. Which is that that uh, programs are, are in some sense the ultimate model, right? Like 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 they're 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 the most you know modular, composable, expressive thing that you can you can possibly imagine. And so there, there's there's always this this dream, this sort of holy grail of of program induction as the I- ideal way to to do inference and to to build models. And that that's something I always uh, I'm always tempted to to think about uh, working on it. It's it's also very hard. 
had a problem that seems uh, intractable in in many ways. But there are there are sort of limited versions of the problem, which is just to to make sort of composable grammars of models and and uh, and work with them rather than uh, rather than a fully fledged uh, programming language. Do you think that we'll get to a point where we have that? I certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean. Uh, but I honestly don't, don't don't know. Exactly. We'll need the next Ilya Satskover to just like think yeah. really hard about it and then have the answer. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So Dougal, we talked a little bit about replicability and sort of fungibility of ideas. And, and that really brings up for me the experimental approach in machine learning. And, and I think we, we see sort of two kind of different cultures, the sort of traditional computer science culture, but maybe as more and more collaboration takes place, we see sort of a more traditional scientific, like sort of experimentally rigorous approach to to building these models come up do do you see that do you have sort of thoughts about the way that that's headed absolutely absolutely yeah so so there's this this funny historical accident which is that machine learning is really statistics as grown out of computer science departments in one sense and and, and computer science is a, is, a, is a wonderfully rich field and it has sort of two schools I think roughly being being very glib there, there's a sort of theoretical analysis uh, school of theoretical computer science and then there's a more sort of practical engineering uh, uh, school Whereas actually machine learning is, is is neither of those. It's a it's a deeply empirical experimental field, right? It's we have very few theoretical tools for for understanding how how neural nets and other things things uh, things work. So we we try different things and 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 see what works. And, and and that's that's totally fine. Empirical science is a great thing, but but it needs to be done with a little bit of, of care and and even creativity almost more than care. So I actually feel very grateful for having some sort of experimental science uh, background, where um you, you, I, I I just think about in biology and in experimental uh, physics and, and chemistry, just the amount of effort people put into building careful instruments to answer particular questions, the creativity of, of, uh, of, of trying to take a large system and, and sort of break it into its components and, and study them individually, sort of break something, break a phenomenon down to the, to the smallest possible experimental system that uh, reproduces that phenomenon. I think we could definitely learn some lessons there in, in, uh, in machine learning, whereas the, the current standard is, is, is more or less to treat the entire thing as a, as a big black box measure one number at the very end, which is some sort of cross-validation loss, then have a small table of numbers that, that summarizes it. So, so I think the field's moving in, in, that, in that direction, and I'm, I'm very excited to see more of that. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like that if we, if that approach was sort of more standard, we might also be able to get around this um, phenomenon of rediscovery that seems to happen a lot, where people are sort of like accidentally rediscovering something that's been around since the 60s, but maybe we didn't have enough compute power to actually make it go. It feels like that might be uh, something that would help us get around that. I do think there is there is a problem in, in science and in general, that, that ideas come in and out of fashion, and and, and so, so so I think there's 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 always going to be some amount of rediscovery as, as technologies change. I definitely think that we'll we'll have a lot more confidence in the things that we do discover if we can do careful experiments to to show them. Whereas, as you mentioned, this sort of reproducibility uh, the crisis, it can be, be very hard to have any any faith in these empirical discoveries if they're if they're not done sort of carefully and and with with enough thought. Yeah. So, how would you what would you advise to someone? Say they're still in graduate school, they're really excited, they're in an awesome lab, they don't have any other, this is their scientific background, they don't have any other exposure to collaborators, how would you suggest to them that they start in this sort of a mode of thinking to approach their experimentation? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and and a and a hard question. It, in some ways, it is about culture, and that's a hard thing to to sort of change consciously. I think there there are there are two directions or or modes of thinking that that, that I'd, I'd like to see more of. One is is just as a sort of baseline, being more careful about experiments. So in in biology, I think I think uh, biology is the is the, is the science where 
things are most black box in the mm -hmm. sense that we, it, you know, at the at the extreme, we we do drug experiments on people, and and all you see is what you put in and and what you get out. And in in those cases, doing careful science is about so some of it's about p values and those sort of statistical questions. But more than that, it's about having careful controls. And and, and biologists just live and breathe controls. It's it's it's, it's always did you try it with a thing on and off, and and and, and did you do other other uh, experiments where you know what the outcome should be just to prove that that that, that you know everything is is sort of sane. And so uh, and I think the the machine learning systems that people study these days are as as mysterious and, and sort of complicated and un, well maybe not as complicated, but certainly as as unknown. As, as biological systems. And, and so I think at the very least, that philosophy of, of, of having controls and having positive and negative controls and, and sanity checks that, that your whole uh, setup uh, works end to end, that's very important. The second thing is, is less tangible, but, but it's about somehow being creative in the questions you ask and not just asking the end-to-end -end questions, mm -hmm. right? Before we, we do drug trials, we study individual proteins and, and individual cellular pathways, and we re really try our best to, to break things down into the, into the smaller system that we, that we can. Whereas, whereas these days in, in machine learning, I think people tend to assume that the only experiment worth running is one that takes multiple weeks on multiple GPUs. Whereas, whereas I think if we, can, if, we can come, if we can have a small model with a small amount of data that runs in a minute that still reproduces the phenomenon that we're trying to study, then we can do much better science and we can we can ask more interesting questions. So I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to see people try to do that more. I also really love the idea of learning from biologists. So maybe just find someone in a different department to like yeah, follow around. Absolutely right, right. Just 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 make friends. That's an excellent point. I mean, I, like like honestly, I have uh, almost no biological background except that uh, that I'm, I'm married to a to a biologist and 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 have 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 many friends who are. And yeah, even just the, the uh, picking up on on language and, and norms is is very helpful. Thank you so much, Dougal. This has been fantastic. Great. Thank you so much, Katie. Great. Google McLaurin, currently at Google Brain. And we'll have links to some of the other projects that he's been involved with on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode 